It's hard to describe to people the challenges of exploring a cave like this. Almost anything you bring into the cave will get wrecked. Imagine climbing a mountain, but instead of having the pack on your back, imagine that you had to basically crawl up the mountain over sharp boulders while throwing the pack ahead of you like two or three feet at a time. Then you crawl to it, throw it again, crawl to it, throw it again. Oh, and then now you have this sort of slimy river you have to crawl through. So you tie it to yourself and you drag it behind you. That's Christian Stenner, one of Canada's leading cave explorers and an RCGS fellow. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. We're about halfway through the International Year of Caves and Karst, so we're especially happy to have Christian Stenner on the podcast with us today. As one of Canada's top cavers, he's been part of many of the most important cave expeditions in recent years in Canada and beyond, including the exploration of Bizarro Anima in British Columbia, which he and his team proved was the deepest cave anywhere in Canada or the U.S. He's also done expeditions in Castleguard Caves, Canada's longest, and in active volcanoes in the U.S. Pacific Northwest. That led him to becoming one of the first ever RCGS Trebek Initiative grantees. He'll be using those resources to explore Canada's only known active volcano, Mount Meagre, in British Columbia. Christian also writes extensively on his caving exploits for Canadian Geographic magazine, which makes this a good time as any to remind you that a subscription to this amazing award-winning magazine only costs $28.50 a year. And you can sign up by visiting cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe. Now, on to my conversation with Christian Stenner. Christian Stenner, welcome to the Explore podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here uh, on this podcast because you've had so many great guests before me. Really happy to have you on because I think, uh, obviously, you've had Jill Heinerth, who's done underwater cave diving, um, but we haven't done a proper above ground cave diving, I guess. If, I don't know how you put it. We haven't done that sort of aspect too. And I haven't really spent a lot of time in the Rocky Mountains, coastal mountains in this, in this podcast either. And those are both areas that you know very well, especially in the caving realm. So I'm um, really, really happy to have you on. You're, you're coming to us from Calgary, which is where you live. Um, and I, that's a short hop from some of the greatest mountain climbing in the world. And I'm just wondering, what is it that prompted you in Calgary to go inside of the mountains rather than just scaling outside where there's lots of fresh air? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right that uh, the an hour's drive to the west and you're just in this outdoor playground. Uh, you know, if you're an alpinist, if you're a hiker, all those sort of things are pretty popular. Caving isn't mm -hmm. as popular. It's not a sport or a recreation that a lot of people get mm -hmm. into. My first experience, my first real experience was doing a, a guided tour in a cave near Canmore where there's a, the Rat's Nest Cave. You can, you can go in there. There's no lights, no handrails. It's not developed like some of the other caves mm -hmm. that are around, mostly in the United States. There's those sort of tours you can do. This one was literally crawling around climbing in the dark and repelling underground and so that was what really got me interested in it sort of as an outdoor sport and then 
Had you been doing my climbing itself though before that? Very little. I was up more into backpacking and hiking at the time. And so just got on this tour and this just, what what was it about that that piqued your interest? It was just so different of an environment than anything else I had experienced. And the idea that you could sort of fit into these tight spaces that you didn't, you you wouldn't believe that a a human could go into and they're like, hey, that's where we're going to go. And it's like, what? (laughs) No way. And then there we go, right? You sort of squeeze and contort yourself into some of these voids. And uh, it was just a physical challenge and a mental challenge. And and it was from that that I got more interested and got into the Alberta Speleological Society, which is the group in Alberta that studies and explores caves. And, and people, mm-hmm. people as well get involved as a sport for recreation. So from there, it just took off and I uh, got more and more involved, bigger and better expeditions and and bigger and better discoveries. So So talk to us about the citizen science aspect of it, because that certainly has become a big part of what you do now. And you've done sort of RCGS flagged uh, expeditions into caves. And when did that become part of what intrigued you about the caving experience? That aspect was really pretty early on. Uh, once I started getting more involved in in trips that were going to parts of caves that nobody had ever been to before, or we had started mm-hmm. making different kinds of discoveries, then it really it showed me that caving is a sport in the service of science, and that you can go into these underground places and make discoveries, and that there mm-hmm. was so much left to explore in in a in a country where we know what the tallest mountain is, and we know we know what the deepest lake is. We still don't truly know what the deepest cave is until we explore them all. We are finding new caves all the time and we're finding new passages in known caves and helping to document where those underground voids will take us. Was there, was there a moment when, um, when the citizen science though, when there's like, oh, hey, I've just found something or this is something people might not know about. Or. Yeah, the actually, again, it was early on. And one of the first trips I did with the Alberta Speleological Society, we did a trip towards the back end of Rat's Nest Cave, the part where the tourists, the tour side doesn't go there. So it's a mm. fairly uh, remote part of the cave that's, uh, that people hadn't been to in a, in a long time. So uh, can you just, yeah. how big is this cave? Uh, it's just, what, it's what, four kilometers long. And wow, over okay. 200 meters deep. And wow. uh, yeah, so the at the the sort of far end of the cave, there are a couple places that are, we call them sumps. That's a part of the mm-hmm. cave passage, which is flooded with water. And in mm-hmm. one of the sumps, uh, me and the two other folks I was with, um, we came across something swimming in the water. And so um, a fellow by the name of Chaz Young had wrote the book on Rat's Nest Cave, literally. Mm -hmm. And of course, I had read this book cover to cover. And I knew that there wasn't supposed to be anything in this water. And so that was pretty intriguing. We uh, ended up uh, consulting some people in in the biology fields and ended up taking samples of this specimen of what was swimming in the water. And it turned out... So it was like a... Is a fish or it a, is yeah. a troglobitic crustacean, an oh, isopod. Fun. So an eyeless, pigmentless little swimming crustacean. They're maybe half a centimeter long, tiny little things that were just living in, in the back of this cave that, you know, despite the cave having been explored since the 1970s, nobody had seen this there before. And so that was really the 
the thing that made me realize that, wow, as a person who's basically got no training or background in this field, that you can make discoveries mm-hmm. and that these discoveries can be made an hour outside of Calgary, uh, that you didn't have to go to far off lands to, to be an explorer. So it was pretty amazing. Yeah, must have been quite gratifying yes. too. Yeah. yeah, so those specimens uh, turned out uh, that they they ended up sending them to the Smithsonian, where they have a crustacean collection of thousands of the world's different crustaceans, and so those specimens are now there. <laughs> In, yeah. Huh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So I I, I want to leap forward if we can sure. to Bizarro sure. Anima, which is the. Uh, you've you've written quite extensively for Canadian Geographic magazine uh, about this, um, and I encourage people actually to go find those articles because there's amazing pictures and even some video attached to that. And also, the Canadian Geographic website was just revamped and looks amazing. So I, there's a couple of reasons to go do that. But um, it's the deepest cave in Canada, and could, so, so tell me a bit about your history with that cave and what brought you there, and then what led to this expedition. Sure. So as I I mentioned before, we're still discovering so much when it comes to the underground world. And Mm -hmm. the entrance to this cave was only found uh, by a fellow named Jeremy Bruns in 2012. So we're so we're literally talking about less than 10 years ago. So it's in a remote mountain plateau north of Fernie in British Columbia. And so you mm-hmm. have to take a helicopter to get up to this area because to hike in there, there's a bit of a head wall and it would be pretty challenging. And to do that with all of the gear you'd need to do any meaningful cave exploration would be difficult. So um, mm-hmm. anyway, so it was years ago that uh, that Jeremy and a few folks from the Alberta Speleological Society had taken the helicopter and did reconnaissance. And there are... At our last count, over 150 different sinkholes and uh, different potential cave entrances on this plateau. But there's Mm -hmm. one of them that goes deep. And it turned out to be this one bizarro anima, starting with a little entrance that you'd have to rappel down maybe five meters. And then there's a bit of a crawlway through some boulders. And then there's a 60 meter drop that just goes, it's just a, you know, a void into the, the darkness. And that was... So can I yeah. stop you yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Because th- that drop, and then there's an even bigger drop <laughs> immediately after this, I think, yeah, too, yeah. if I've looked at the map. I mean, you're, so you reach this drop, and I'm, I'm sort of thinking of that scene in the Mines of Moria in the Lord of the Rings when they drop a bucket down a well, and it just goes and goes and goes. Like, how do you know how far down that's going to be how do you know? I mean, do you, do you have a hundred meters of rope? Are you? How do you even begin to like in the pitch dark figure out how to, where you're going and how to manage that? Yeah. So when you come onto a new pitch like that, a lot of the time your headlamp isn't even powerful enough to see the bottom, and so you you sort of have to. Hopefully you've had a hundred meters of rope, literally, that you can use because, yeah, mm-hmm. the longest pitch in Bizarro Anima is 105 meters in depth. Right. So there are some, yeah, some considerations for what equipment you might need. You'll have to set yeah. some anchors into the rock using bolts because a lot of the time in our caves in the Rockies, there are not good natural places to tie a rope to. You just can't do that. Um, right. so yeah, you basically have to rappel down and 
set a knot in the end of your rope so that you don't rappel off of the tail end and and, and, <laughs> yeah. and fall into the blackness, right? So you have to be very mindful of where the end of the rope is in the case that it doesn't reach all the way to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the diameter of this funnel you're going down? Uh, let's say it's about a 10 meters diana- diameter. Yeah. So yeah. This, there's a fair bit yeah. of space yeah. there at least. Yeah. 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 And what's the, what's the feeling as you're going down that for the first time into the void as you described it yeah so i mean i wasn't the first one down that particular void but in other ones i Mm. i know the feeling and it it is it is it can be scary because you just don't know what's at the bottom you don't know if there'd be some obstacle um but it's an amazing feeling of discovery to know you're the first person to descend into this darkness and then there's the thrill of what you might find at the bottom like is it going to be a dead end or is there going to be kilometers of undiscovered cave that this will reach right by descending this are you going to reach this new part that nobody knew was there and that would be amazing and basically is that's was the end result of this one was there was yeah so the early expeditions uh found a couple of these different drops and then it wasn't until a few years later that i got involved i had been involved in some other projects and you know there's different teams of people who kind of work on on different things and uh, Mm. so it was maybe five years ago that i went on my first expedition to bizarro anima by that time it had been explored through a series of drops to I want to say it was over 400 meters deep by that time and the deepest cave in Canada was uh, over 600 meters deep at the time Mm -hmm. so we still had a bit of a ways to go Um, so on that expedition my first ever trip in Bizarro Anima we had a a couple teams of cavers and we were going Mm -hmm. to set a new underground camp from that, using it as a staging point to go even deeper than the limit of exploration from before. And so we set Camp 2 in the cave. Uh, I want to say it's at about 520 meters deep. That's the deepest cave camp set in any cave north of Mexico, North America. So yeah, that was a, it was a bit of a chore to bring all of the equipment down to set the camp. And mm-hmm. then we had a couple different pitches that we rigged with rope beyond the camp which brought it from third deepest in Canada to second deepest and -hmm. then we switched off with another team so we went to uh, explore a different part of the cave and then the other uh, team that sort of came after us which included Katie Graham who's another one of the Mm co-leaders on the Bizarro project so her Mm -hmm. and her team went down and explored further than those drops and they ended up at a, a frustrating uh, result of being exactly tied with the depth no of the way. current deepest cave in Canada at the time. So the, the frustrating part was that they were, they were tied, but the, the challenging part that came with that is that the depth that they reached was the surface of an underground lake. No. So there was a way on, but it's underwater. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yes. So, so do you have scuba gear? Is that part of what you hauled down? Not on that trip. So that's what really okay. started the modern exploration that we've seen in the last few years. And that is where we've had to haul scuba diving gear to this point, 650 meters below the surface of the earth. And that's where the dive starts. 
uh, it's a two-day journey to get down to that point and then two days to get back out uh, climbing all of the right. various pitches. So to do just a single dive in that location is it's incredibly remote, uh, very challenging because it's a cave dive and underground and you know all the other challenges that come with that. So the last few expeditions have been focused on that, along with the other objectives. We have about 50, we had about 50 different other leads to explore. These are not flooded with water, but they're literally just, there's a junction. You can go left or go right. We explored right. Nobody has explored left yet. So there's all kinds of those throughout the cave. And so we have tons of different exploration leads and and the dive is just one of them the dive that's at the very bottom so we came back in the it was over new year's eve uh planned a seven day underground trip where we had three different teams at multiple camps and that was over 2018 new year's eve and that's Mm -hmm. where um katie uh did the solo dive at the very bottom and got to a new depth which we measure as we go we have to survey and prove our result Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. she was able to reach the depth of at the time 670 meters which broke the record and that's how we could confirm it as the deepest cave in canada that depth i mean she i mean if she could have kept going we could have been deeper is that right true well so the (laughs) the story doesn't end there so we went back two years after that Uh, after two Mm -hmm. years of planning we went back and had planned that she would go even deeper so we had to bring in more equipment um, everything to support that and at a place that we named vimy ridge It's like a massive Mm -hmm. underground scree slope with loose rocks and boulders is is your footing. And that's where Katie broke her ankle uh, on day day two of what was going to be like an eight or nine day underground trip. On day two, she broke her ankle. And Mm -hmm. uh, that was the end of the diving part for her. So she wasn't going to be able to do that. Over a three-day period, we brought her... She was able to bear weight on it, uh, but over yeah. three days, she made her way to the surface with the assistance of the rest of the, the team. So that sort of put, put a bit of a damper on it. We did other exploration and we were able to increase the cave length, I want to say, by about half a kilometer on that trip. So we still had some, some mm-hmm. results, but it didn't get any deeper. Our backup diver, Adam Walker, was able to dive uh, in place of Katie, and he was able to reach the same depth that she did. Mm-hmm. So no change. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to a few months ago. After two wow. years of waiting and two years of planning in October of 2021, we went back. We had mm-hmm. 14 people on the expedition planned for about over a two week time scale. Wow. And the goal was to get the equipment down so that the dive can be done again and explore some of the other 50 unexplored leads in the other parts of the cave. And so, yeah, the team went down and we had two separate teams, one based out of camp one, one based out of camp two. So I ran the team based out of camp one and Katie ran the team based out of camp two. We spent two days just logistics, hauling all of the gear in place to get everything ready so that she could Mm -hmm. be the one to go and dive again. 
and there's there's no radios like there's no communication through solid rock with the equipment that we mm-hmm. have so you know once we had everything in place it was like okay off you go and we're gonna go back to to camp one and and we'll hear back in in a few days like if things went well or if there's Amazing. a terrible tragedy so uh things went well it was good so um on on her end she was able to dive and reach a new low point so the cave depth is now 683 meters deep confirmed by survey mm-hmm. and uh, she was able to to chart that and the passage is still going so there's still an unreached limit underwater that uh, is continuing uh but just with the air supplies and logistics you know there wasn't the equipment to to press on while that was happening my team at camp one was exploring some other parts of the cave and we were able to add almost a kilometer to the length of the cave by exploring a number of other passages so the whole the end result is that the cave is about a kilometer longer and and a new depth record as of October of 2021. And where we had 53 unexplored leads before, we now have 83. So the exploration has given us more questions to answer as far as charting where this underground maze is going to take us. Amazing. I mean, is there a way you could get, say, an unmanned vessel under there? Or like, is that a possibility? Yeah, potentially. I mean, the technology is now getting to that point where we have, you know, yeah. underwater drones and different things that yeah. could could do that. Uh, but mm-hmm. again, it's, it's the, and it's hard to describe to people the challenges of exploring a cave like this, that almost anything you bring into the cave will get wrecked. Like the, like, <laughs> you know, imagine imagine climbing a mountain but instead of having the pack on your back and just climbing mm-hmm. a mountain with it imagine that you had to basically crawl up the mountain over sharp boulders while throwing the pack ahead of you like two or three feet at a time then you crawl to it yeah. throw it again crawl to it throw it again oh and then now you have this sort of slimy river you have to crawl through so you tie it to yourself and you drag it behind you and then you've got a hundred meter drop you have to rappel down so you have it suspended on a tether sort of hanging below you dangling and so i mean the amount of gear that you can bring um is is always Mm -hmm. a logistical problem and getting gear that will not break under harsh conditions is another problem so that's one of the reasons why we don't see a lot of things like drones and and other technologies they're getting better don't get me wrong but uh and and the expense of it most of the exploration that's happened in in canada over the last 50 years has been funded by the caving community themselves right most of the funding Mm -hmm. is basically us taking our vacation time and going and and paying our way to do it so i have a whole bunch of follow-up questions Uh, first of all i'm wondering what it's like what's what is your camp like when you've set up camp like are there tents? Yeah. There wouldn't be tents. You don't need tents. Are there tents? No, like no. A, a Coleman stoves? Yeah, or? yeah. No, camping in uh, every cave is going to be a little bit different because of the underground geography. Sometimes there can be a flat place to sleep and you can just lay out mm-hmm. an air mattress and your sleeping mm-hmm. bag and it's fine. In Bizarro Anima, the ground is a conglomeration of odd-shaped boulders and there is no flat place. We have to sleep suspended above the ground in hammocks. 
And oh, wow. so, yeah, we'll string up hammocks in sort of a nook that you can, you have just enough space to do that. And the few camps that we'll set are near water sources. So there'll be an underground waterfall or an underground stream that we can get water. So they're co-located with water and they're in a place where we can at least fit three to four people. So each of the underground camps, uh, of, we have four of them in Bizarro Anima now. Each of them only fits about three to four people at a time because they're mm. not they're not very spacious. And then yeah, you're count you're just cooking dehydrated meals on a stove. You're using right. the water that you've retrieved from uh, drips or streams that are near nearby mm -hmm. to the camp. Yeah, and it's about two degrees Celsius, so you're basically in a refrigerator living in that. Um, you take off your wet, muddy cave suit at the end of the day, get in your sleeping bag where it's warm, and then the next day you wake up and put on your wet, muddy cave suit and go back at it. Wow. Wow. Obviously no fires per se, so there's nothing. Nope. There's no drying things at two degrees Celsius. No, ev everything, either, once it's wet, it more or less stays wet. Um, and so you're basically in a damp, kind of muddy, wet environment. And in Bizarro, we our camps are, are say, seven days long. You're just in that sort of uh, wet, cold environment constantly. Um, so yeah, this last expedition, we had uh, 102 person days uh, on the ground between the 14 people. Mm -hmm. And 75 of those were camp nights underground by the team. So I was underground nine mm -hmm. days straight. A uh, couple, couple wow. of the others were a little bit more. And uh, yeah, we, uh, I mean, the result is just amazing to, to, to know that there's still more to discover and even more than we knew before. And it shows you how cave exploration is something that happens on a decadal timescale. The cave right. discovered in 2012, 10 years later, we still have 83 unexplored leads. Like it'll be 50 years before we might get to the end of this thing. And the example I'll compare it to is Canada's longest cave, which you mentioned. Castle Guard Cave mm -hmm. is Canada's longest. Right. Over 50 years of exploration, we are still finding new passages and new ways on. And... It's, some of these things are just never going to end. Like it's, it's just, that's yeah. the feeling we get. Yeah. Which has got to be a huge part of the appeal for you. You're going places. No one's been like, like that Star Trek line, right? <laughs> Boldly go where no man has been before or whatever it is. Absolutely. And it's an amazing thing to know that you are in a place that nobody's ever been before. Your light is shining on a place that has never seen light before. It's existed mm. for millennia. Uh, in complete darkness and that your footsteps are the first to, to go to a place. And and the other discoveries that can come from that, which which we can get into if you want, uh, <laughs> the, there's so much more. It's, it's more than just knowing about our world and about the geography of the world. That just leads to all kinds of other discovery. So one of the examples I like to give is related to speleothems. And these are those beautiful cave formations, the stalactites and stalagmites, those actually hold a paleoclimate record that can go back hundreds of thousands of years. So we can learn so much about our past climate history by examining speleothems because they're formed over a period of millennia. 
and inside they have like rings like tree rings so you can essentially go back in time by examining speleothems and find things like uh, fluid inclusions that can tell us about historical rainfall in different parts of our Earth's history. And one of the really amazing things that I just learned about you had Alana Mitchell as a guest on the podcast, uh, and so she wrote she wrote a book about the reversal of Earth's magnetic field. Yeah, terrifying. and so here's terrifying. <laughs> oh, absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. But you can imagine, like, well, how can how can we know things like that? You know, that happened in the past. Well, one of the things that gets trapped in speleothems over these million year timescales that they take to form is iron inclusions. So iron, of course, being magnetic, iron inclusions in speleothems will orient themselves to the magnetic field of the planet at the time they get trapped. And then they get trapped that way. So if we look at speleothems from around the world that have iron inclusions, we can actually see where they were oriented with the magnetic field prior to the last magnetic field reversal 780,000 years ago. So caves are stepping into a cave is like stepping into a time warp where you're going into an environment that is a million years old which is so different from the surface environment, right? A lot of Canada was covered by glaciers, which receded, like in Western Canada, the glaciers receded, say, 8,000 years ago. So you're looking at an environment that had its genesis, the forests, the trees. Some of those only started 8,000 years ago. But in a cave, you can be in an environment that has literally been forming over a million year time scale. And we can literally find things in the cave that can tell us about our paleoclimate or paleomagnetism. Or we're finding animals. We're finding life. We're finding bacteria. We're finding things that have existed completely isolated and cut off from the surface world over a million years that have existed in these refuges that have evolved without the other influences of the surface. And these are truly unique organisms, truly unique bacteria that have amazing properties that are different from what we might find anywhere else on the planet. Mm. Are, are there instances now where you are working directly with scientists, though, like facilitating their research in places they wouldn't get to? Possibly? Absolutely. Uh, and that's where the cave environment, the challenges of it can make it very restrictive to ask to who can go. And so a lot mm. of the time now when we do a big expedition, it's in partnership with different researchers. And so some of those partnerships are, are so wide ranging. Like, uh, you know, we've worked with microbiologists. We've worked with astrobiologists. We've worked with hydrologists. Um, we've worked mm -hmm. with robotic scientists from NASA that are testing technologies to use in the exploration of some of the icy worlds uh, or icy moons of the solar system. Um, so <laughs> caving uh, as itself, speleology is a science on its own, but uh, it's mm -hmm. connected and interconnected to so many other disciplines that we're, we're finding there's lots of different scientists mm -hmm. who will want to work with us because we can bring back samples or we can tell them about environments that they wouldn't be able to go to themselves.
So I, I want to get on to some other stuff, but just when you're talking about about that experience in Bizarre Anima and being down underground for nine days, I'm just wondering what that does to your sense of reality. Because I mean, you're 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 out of touch with the outside world pretty much at that point too, and it's dark. Is it just headlamps? Is that the only light? Yeah, really? yeah. It is just headlamps and the batteries that you could bring in with you. And so we always cave with a minimum of three lights and that's mm -hmm. for safety. Each team member will have three lights. And so they're all independent uh, that they can, if one breaks, you can switch to a different one. And we use those for lighting our way during exploration, but also around camp. And when mm -hmm. you turn off, when everyone turns off their lights, there is no light. And that is the sensory perception part that you're in a world that is it is it is devoid of color. It is browns and grays and mud and rock and blackness. And so when you get back to the surface after many days underground, you're assaulted by the green of the trees and the blue of the sky. So that's uh, one of the things I find. The other thing is your sense of smell. Like you're, you're only smelling basically mud and dust mm -hmm. and, uh, for, for a time frame. And once you get back to the surface, you can start to smell the world. And so that is truly amazing. But underground, I don't find necessarily that you feel deprived until you get back to a place where there's a lot to take in. Huh? Yeah. Gives you a new appreciation for the rest of the world, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the appeals to me is that every time I've come back from a cave trip, whether it's a short day trip or a longer trip underground, I always have an appreciation for the world and for the conveniences of modern society and for <laughs> for the blue of the sky and for the trees and everything that's around us. Yeah, no, I can believe that. So you are one of the, I guess you're one of the first Trebek Initiative grantees. This is an RCGS um, program. Yes. And you are going to be, with your funding, are going to be exploring uh, the Mount Meager Volcanic Complex which is Canada's only active volcano. And I never even knew Canada had active volcano. So, so this is all news to me. So tell me about that and what led to your interest in that. That's yeah. Thank you. That's an amazing um, honor to be one of the first Trebek initiative grants mm -hmm. and to be involved in what I believe is just such an amazing uh, project mm -hmm. to explore in and around Canada's only active volcano. And as you said, everybody everybody says that. Mm. You're not the first person. Like Canada has volcanoes. For one, that's sort of mind-blowing. Two is that we have active volcanoes. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing is that we actually don't monitor our volcanoes in Canada. And so there might be more active volcanoes. This is actually the only one we know is active. And the reason we know it's active is because uh, it was in 2016, so this is a glaciated volcano. Mm -hmm. It's uh, north of Squamish, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the Garibaldi volcanic belt. So mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the Pacific Ring of Fire, yeah. the, the ring of volcanoes on either side of the Pacific Ocean, and then the Cascade Volcano Range of the United States. So going up through Washington State, mm -hmm. that continues into Canada. And so we have the Garibaldi volcanic belt. So there's a series of volcanoes up and around, you know, stretching from the Vancouver area up north uh, mm -hmm. uh, along that same line. And so 
in 2016, the glacier at the volcano showed something very peculiar that people had not noticed before. And that was that there were holes in the glacier with steam and gas coming out of them. Nice. And so, well, what's a hole in a glacier or a hole in the rock? A cave. Mm -hmm. So that can sort of lead you to how I get tied into this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'll take a step back and talk a little bit about some of the projects that we've done in the Cascade Range. So mm -hmm. in the United States, I've been involved for the last seven years or so in exploration of some of the glacial volcanic interactions on places like Mount St. Helens and Mount Rainier, mm -hmm. which are both in Washington state. So glacial volcanism is the interaction between the heat from underneath the earth and volcanoes and glacial ice. Mm -hmm. And there's only a limited amount of volcanoes around the world that are glaciated and have potential for volcano ice interactions. And so some of them are in Antarctica, some of them are in other remote parts of the world, but some of them are right here close to us. Mm -hmm. And so we have in the Cascade Range and now Mount Meager as being some of the few places in the world where these glacial volcanic interactions has formed a cave system in the glacial ice. Amazing. And so this is such a rare thing and sort of the academic literature a bit uh, dispersed um, that they really didn't even have a proper name. So it was actually, it was our group and, and myself that came up to, to call them glacial volcanic caves. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, there's a lot of different examples of, of how that can happen, but typically it's fumarolic, uh, emissions from subglacial fumaroles that cause the ice of the glacier to melt and it melts around the fumarole and eventually forms a cave passage going to the surface. Wait, what's a fumarole? So that's basically um, um, a volcanic vent mm. where gas and steam can be emitted okay. from underneath the surface of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening is that the this gas and steam is being emitted from underneath the glacier and it's causing the glacier to melt. Mm. And so it melts basically a cave passage in the glacier ice. So you're going into these cave passages. There's got to be, I mean, the, the, the dangers have to be exponentially bigger because it's a volcano. And, and I mean, obviously that comes with a lot of noxious air. I mean, there's got to be so many other, I mean, what, what are the dangers you're having to overcome to, to go head into that space? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to be too over dramatic about it, but there are, yes, there are, there are dangers. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the first of which is that you're going into the crater of an active volcano. Right. Okay. That's number one. Right. <laughs> Two is you're going into the crater of an active volcano where you're going into an underground environment. Mm -hmm. So not only is it a volcano, it's a cave. Right. So going underground has its own challenges, right? You're, you're cut off from the surface. There's no helicopter that can just sling you out and mm -hmm. take you to the hospital. Um, so there's you, you've added that on top of it. Secondly, you've got loose rock that can be part of the ground and, and things that can shift, mm -hmm. as we as we already know from Bizarro Anima. Um, <laughs> we have the glacial ice, which is less stable mm -hmm. than caves formed in rock. Caves formed in rock are formed over a geologic time scale. So in, in fact, they tend to be fairly stable. Mm -hmm. A collapse of the ceiling is a once in a thousand year event. Yeah. Whereas a collapse of glacial ice can be seasonal. It can be daily. It could be 
you know, much, much quicker time scales. Mm-hmm. So we have that. And as you mentioned, the last sort of thing is volcanic heat emissions uh, from subglacial fumaroles can also come with steam and volcanic gases mm-hmm. like hydrogen sulfide and carbon dioxide yeah. and sulfur dioxide. Those are all very dangerous things. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and, and so where they might disperse in ambient air, when they collect underground, they can be more concentrated. Yeah. And so that's another another threat that, that's there. So, yeah, I, I guess there are quite a few different things that we're up against to explore this type of cave. But how, you have a lot of experience already. Heading. I mean, do you feel, obviously feel confident based on your Mount Rainier and Mount St. Helens experiences that you know what you're doing? Or is that a, a different environment? Those ones are, are a bit different environment, but also very similar. And, and so, yeah, from those other experiences, um, we've been able to get quite a, a fair bit of background on how to sort of do this sort of expedition safely, mm-hmm. on what to expect underground mm-hmm. in these types of environments. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of experience coupled with um, pre-planning and the logistical aspect of it assembling a good team as as i mentioned with bizarro anima i mean these things are not a solo endeavor no there's an entire team of people that are are part of that when does this take place then the mount meager the canada's only volcano i want to say that again (laughs) active volcano only active volcano only known active volcano yeah so we're planning for this fall in the september time frame uh, to go back, yeah. Yeah, and when I say go back, we've been there to do some reconnaissance and to have some experience to know what we're up against. Uh, and that's what helped our, our planning uh, for the Trebek grant. Yeah. I, I, you've been very generous with your time, and I don't want to keep you too long. My last question is, what is the most sort of stunning or memorable place you found yourself in while caving? Can you just describe that? Hmm. I mean, there's there's a few. Mm-hmm. There's a few. Uh, I would say one of them was in British Columbia. We have a cave project that we've been uh, involved in exploring what's Canada's, currently Canada's longest marble cave. Mm. And so this cave is very interesting. It's got a lot of extremely beautiful speleothems. What's a speleothem, right? Yes, the next question. What's a speleothem? That is the term we use for cave formations. So any of those stalactites, stalagmites, or Mm. other things that are formed by basically the the, um, minerals from the cave are being redeposited mm-hmm. underground and they form these different different shapes and different beautiful things that you can look at that you don't see anywhere on the surface typically this cave is what i believe is the most beautifully decorated cave in canada there are hundreds and thousands of these different cave decorations of all different types there's things that we call cave pearls there are things that we call soda straws. They're like a, exactly what you'd think of, a straw. But think of a straw that's about two meters long that grows at a rate of one centimeter every hundred years. Wow. Yeah. And they're so incredibly delicate that if you were to just flick it with your finger, it would collapse. Oh, wow. 
And there are galleries of hundreds of these things hanging from the ceiling. And so it's just such an amazing place. And so we already knew this because we've been through quite many parts of the cave. But years ago, I was on one of those trips where we were exploring a new part of the cave that that, um, where we it was one of those leads that we had on our list. Like, no, you know, last time we went right. So this time we're going to go left. So we went left and we came across what I uh, what I say was probably one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen underground. And so you had to get on your hands and knees and start crawling through a passage that was kind of like a sewer tunnel, like Mm. a tube. But the thing about the tube was the floor was entirely made of crystals. Oh, my God. So you could imagine what you'd believe like a quartz crystal would look like. Imagine a floor just made of quartz crystals, only they aren't quartz. They're made of calcite. Mm -hmm. Um. But the look is very similar. And so we crawled across this floor and they were super hard and super sharp. So we were able to crawl across it without breaking any. Of course, we tested this. We didn't just do it haphazardly, right? That has to be painful too for you. Um, it was okay. It was okay. Uh, we had, I mean, we were wearing wetsuits and that provided a little bit of padding uh, against that. But right. a little bit further, we found what I believe was... was um, one of the only places in Canada, if not the only place that we've ever seen this, we saw a single soda straw out of hundreds in this cave. Mm. We saw a single soda straw that had the same type of crystals growing from the sides of it. So imagine a McDonald's drinking straw, but it's got little crystals growing along it like a Christmas tree, just kind of, and it was the tiniest little thing, but it was so incredibly unique and it was all alone compared to all of the other ones that didn't have this feature. And that's a truly amazing thing because those type of crystals only grow underwater. Wow. And soda straws only grow in dry caves caused by drips from the ceiling. Mm -hmm. So you have to do a little bit of mental gymnastics to to think about how crystals would grow on a soda straw. And that over millennial timescales, that tube had to have been flooded with water, drained with water, flooded with water, and then drained again with water in order for it to exist in its current state for us to have explored it. And through all of that time, the crystals on the floor formed, the soda straw formed in a dry phase, then it flooded again, the crystals formed on the existing soda straw, and then it must have drained again for us to explore it. And that was one of the most amazing things I think I've ever seen underground. And to this day, only three people in human history have ever physically laid eyes on that specific thing because we documented it with photos and we were back again once, one other time, and we have never been back since. And so... Wow. I mean, these are places that are, are beautiful and truly untouched. Uh, 
you know, compared to other parts of the world. So that was, that, I would say that is the highlight of, of things that I've seen underground. Wow. Maybe that been part of. sounds mind-boggling and gorgeous. <laughs> and yeah, well, incredible. Well, listen, Kristen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing these experiences with us and really taking all of us to places I'm sure most of us will never go, but sound just incredible. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode or this podcast, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're all slaves to the algorithm in this podcasting universe, and the more good things are said about us, the more opportunities we get to reach a bigger audience. And remember also to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people We have Simpson about June 10th, with the fur brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by ten voyageurs. For us, it means that Indian oral history is very strong. We flew over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160.